People's History in Texas proudly presents Episode 3 of Doing the Right Thing, The Pesticide Battle in Texas. Today, we will be following the work of Dale Burnett, an actual in-the-field regulator. This is Carla Nickerson, and I'm happy that you've joined me today as People's History in Texas explores stories about people, places, and events in Texas history that have been forgotten but should be remembered. People's History in Texas interviewed Dale Burnett, an award-winning employee of the Texas Department of Agriculture who was in charge of regulating the use of pesticides before, during, and after the Hightower years. He told his story to PHIT in 2020. My role was an inspector uh, in West Texas. I uh, lived in San Angelo and worked mainly west from there. With I think my core counties were around 10 or 12, but on occasion, uh, certain staff needs led me all the way to El Paso and up to Lubbock. Those staff needs uh, sometimes concerned major outbreaks of pests. Dale Burnett, although originally skeptical of Jim Hightower, this non-farmer who'd been elected to run the Texas Department of Agriculture, was nevertheless hopeful when Hightower first took office. The core of what interested me may sound very boring, but uh, it wasn't to me. He was going to allow us to do something unusual in the regulatory program. He was going to have us do something called enforce the law. (laughs) And that sounds, that may sound uh, crazy, but uh, uh, that was unusual to actually enforce what you've been given to do. You're charged by the legislature to actually do that you're going to offend one party or another when you're doing that. And if, if rancher, if rancher Smith oversprayed and sprayed farmer Jones cotton or people, you're going to be in conflict. And that was not readily embraced by former commissioners. When Hightower came in and his staff like Rick Lowry And Dan Ruiz said, we're going to enforce the law. That was the first thing that grabbed me. That was the first, that was the first thing that that hit home to me as a field person. The use of pesticides in agriculture had been recognized as a problem since Rachel Carson wrote Silent Spring in 1962. Pesticide use and abuse affected all parts of the food chain consumers, workers, and the environment. Pesticides are very good at killing pests, but critics pointed out that pesticides also kill or damage all living things, bees, beneficial bugs, songbirds, and occasionally people. The Environmental Protection Act of 1971 recognized the need to regulate this use of toxic poisons to kill agricultural pests. But the USDA and the chemical companies managed to deflect any meaningful regulation. Jim Hightower, in his book, Hard Tomatoes, Hard Times, explained that the national USDA was simply not going to be any help in this struggle for regulation. 
The USDA had a particular mindset that chemical farming was good for the nation and good for farmers, especially good for the large, efficient farmers. Reform, Hightower realized, would have to start on the state level. A good policy, but someone on the ground had to actually enforce it. And it also takes support from the top, and it takes time to educate the farmers. Dale Burnett was one of those folks on the front line. Because we only had so many staff, we only had so many attorneys, you couldn't take every case to its extreme. Sometimes you had to issue a warning instead of a fine just because of the load. What we saw in the early years was this good intention resulted in a little bit of a backlog. And it was through good intentions that that happened. It was through good, good, good intentions. But then the, it swung back to, I believe, what was a great accomplishment on behalf of the team was we hit our rhythm in about year four, year five. And we were, we were able to determine how many pieces we could handle at what level uh, how many cases can we handle with the resources we have and make a difference? And I think we hit that stride well enough to be recognized as in the top one or two states in the United States for our enforcement, for our diligence. And I don't know if you can see behind me, there's a plaque I still have in the center in 1990 in the... Um, fall of 1990, uh, EPA gave that award to me and our team. It was the first EPA Environmental Excellence Award given to an individual that was not a corporation. That was a big deal. It, beforehand, EPA had only recognized corporations for their good work. And that's fine. That has its place to recognize corporate to recognize corporations for being good citizens is a good thing, but never before had EPA recognized an individual or a state for their good environmental work. And that was in November of 1990. We had got it humming really well. We got the big award. We got the recognition. We had in place standards that were being enforced and then here comes a new regime and they created yet another backlog. Nothing could be done. Then something happened that had never been done before in the fall. And that was EPA cut off TDA's funding. It was a significant amount of the budget. EPA grant each year was around $800,000 a year. Our pesticide budget was about 2.3. So it was not quite half, probably about a third of the budget. EPA said, we're not going to let you create another backlog. We just gave out the award. They were doing good. And now you have fired all these people and you're not letting them do the job. In episode two, Juanita Cox told the story of the United Farm Workers' fight to prevent farm workers being sprayed by pesticides from crop dusters while they worked. but. Aerial applicators are also workers. 
They are also at risk from poisoning and neural damage from pesticides. The TDA created regulations and training. Dale Burnett worked with those aerial applicators to make their work a bit more safe. The majority of the ones I dealt with, you know, to put a percentage on it, I couldn't, I don't feel, I'd say half or three-fourths, well over half, I would say an up to three-fourths were, were prudent. And there was the other 25 to 50% that it was all about the money. And I worked very well with those that, 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 that were prudent, or at least they were prudent when I was around. It was fascinating that it always seemed like there was certain ones that were usually the ones violating the laws. And there were some that never seemed to get any complaints. And they would always want to follow the guidance, both regulatory and policy, to stay out of trouble and to put their, put their spray where it was supposed to go not on the neighbors. And I carried, I carried a lot of those relationships with me from San Angelo in West Texas. Those relationships stayed with me uh, when I got to Austin. And um, you know, I, I respected them for what they, had, what they had chosen to do in their lives. But I saw it from one extreme to the other. Uh, had chemical salesmen tell me that it wouldn't hurt anything. And yet the pesticides were designed to kill. So they're going, they're designed to kill something. And so, you know, the stuff that we were told in the seventies and eighties about it being safe, safe is safe is a, is a variable. It's not a, it's like aspirin. You can't take too much of it. Is aspirin safe? Well, to some people, to some people, it's not. One of the tricks used by the chemical companies to avoid pesticide regulation was to ask for emergency exemptions. Prior to the high tower years, agricultural commissioners just routinely granted the exemption. One other thing in the pesticide realm uh, that I give a lot of credit to to Rick, uh, Lowry, and High Tower was on the registration end of pesticides. Ah. Uh, a lot of pesticide registration is routine. A lot of it is, is uh, you just crank it out because it's an old product and it's not reviewed, but every 10 or 20 years. But there was a big exception to that, that Texas could play a role in. And that was what they called emergency exemptions. And an example of that would be an unusual pest that had not attacked a particular crop in Texas for many years. And yet this particular summer, it attacks that crop and there's no product for it. Well, TDA would have people review, review the, uh, the, the situation. And unlike previous administrations, under Hightower, it was really scrutinized. It wasn't just check off, go for it. It was scrutinized. And, and baloney was called if 
somebody was seeking an exemption as an emergency three years in a row without applying for a regular registration, going through those hoops. <laughs> if you have an emergency for three summers, it starts to not be an emergency anymore. So an emergency is only emergency if it's, you know, like this year or next year, but not three, four, five years you need. So high towers registration people would say, before we approve this again, you're going to have to go through the regular channels of getting a product approved for this particular crop that has gone through regular scrutiny, not one month. That was a big deal. Thank you for listening. PHIT's current project here at People's History in Texas is the recovery of the 1980s history of Jim Hightower and his talented staff at the Texas Department of Agriculture. In the 1980s, during the most severe farm crisis since the 1930s, the Texas TDA was a leader in the creation of national public policy. Their stated mission was to develop an agricultural policy that would save the family farmer, protect the farm worker, provide safe and quality products to the consumer, and, on top of all that, protect the environment. The alliance between the United Farm Workers and the Texas Department of Agriculture was successful in changing the face of agriculture in Texas. If you'd like to learn more about People's History in Texas, visit our website at peopleshistoryintexas.org for regularly updated blog posts and you can also find a list of People's History in Texas already completed documentaries. Please subscribe to this Mining the Archive channel on Spotify and subscribe to our Facebook page to receive alerts about new podcasts, blogs, and documentaries. Music